Well, good morning, class. Uh-oh. Good morning, class. Wasn't that a good introduction for today? Um, I'm glad y'all stayed after she finished. I really appreciate you being here, and we are just enjoying our opportunity together. I hope you are, too. We've got a lot to look forward to in the days to come. Now, this morning, I want you to turn with me to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2. I want to do a little bit of reviewing as we go along. This is going to build, and we want to be able to recall what we found in, in prior lessons. Now, I want to remind you that Daniel's very name tells you something about what's going on in this book. In this, book. this is a book that talks about God's control, his sovereignty, in particular over the Gentile world. He's the judge. He is our judge. He is the judge of the Gentiles throughout history and then into the nation of Israel as well. Now, I want you to remember also that Daniel was somewhere between 16, 19, 20 years of old, depending on the date you set for his birth. So he's a young man, teenager. He probably comes from the royal family because of some things that are said in chapter 1, but at least he's from the nobles within the nation. He's a prominent individual and very bright and he's deported to Babylon under the, uh, the command of Nebuchadnezzar, according to chapter 1. The outline of the book, I want to emphasize that today. The outline of the book, chapter 1, God's sovereignty uh, in chapter 1 over Daniel's captivity. God's sovereignty over Daniel's captivity. But then in chapter 2 through chapter 7, it's God's sovereignty over the Gentile world. And it's in chapter 2 that we begin a series of six different dreams that are to be interpreted by Daniel and help us to understand how God is in control down through the years. And it's a, it is a section in the book, I'll just remind you, it's about Gentiles, and so the Aramaic is the language of chapter 2 through chapter 7. We also pointed out to you that as we begin this section, we have the first dream, and it deals with four kingdoms, four Gentile kingdoms, plus a special one that God is going to set up. And then in chapter 7, again, it, this section ends with the four kingdoms and the sovereignty of God introducing us to a fifth kingdom, which is his kingdom. And then in chapter 8 through chapter 12, we have the final major section of the book, and it's God's sovereignty over the Jewish world. Now, when we talk about chapter 2, and you may make, want to make a note or two here, I'll just give you the flow, the outline of chapter 2. When you come to chapter 2 and it's verse 1 through verse 18, we read about the fact that King Nebuchadnezzar has concealed the dream. Now, we're going to talk about a little bit of controversy over this in a minute or two, but he conceals the dream in verses 1 through 18. 
And then we'll note that in verse 19, the dream is revealed to Daniel. Note that preposition. It is a, a dream being revealed to Daniel. That's verse 19 through verse 23. Then in verse 24, chapter 2, through the end of the chapter, verse 49, the dream is revealed by Daniel. Now look up here. Here's the movement of thought. I'm not going to tell you what dream I, I had. I want you to tell me what the dream was, and then I know I can trust you and have credibility in what you say about an interpretation. That's the first 18 verses. Then we find that uh, Daniel has the dream revealed to him. The king's so mad at his wise men that he suggests that they're all going to be killed. And we're going to talk about that in a moment. And finally, word gets back to Daniel. And he says, now, wait a minute. Let me go to God. And he goes back to his three friends. They pray together. And God reveals the dream to Daniel. Now, I want to stop right there and hold your place in chapter 2. But I want you to look at chapter 1, verse 17. Daniel is going to be the one that can interpret this dream. Tell him what it was. Tell King Neb what it was. And then he's going to give the interpretation as well. And it's interesting in chapter 1 and verse 17. It says, and as those uh, four use, uh, as for those four use, God gave them knowledge, intelligence, in every branch of literature and wisdom. And Daniel even understood <clears throat> all kinds of visions and dreams. So in chapter 1, we're told that God gives him that ability. But he goes to God, and God reveals it to, he, uh, to him and his uh, three friends. Then in the verse 24 to 29 in chapter 2, you have the third division. That's where the dream is revealed by Daniel to the king. Everybody with me? Now, that's the outline of the book and the outline of chapter 2. I would point out to you one other thing. This is the first of six dreams, two by Nebuchadnezzar, four by Daniel himself. And Daniel has to interpret all six of them. The other thing I want to point out to you is in chapter 2, you have a term used that I, I think is very important. Notice in some translations, it will, it will translate it secret. In other translations, it will be mystery. And either one is perfectly okay. Now look up here for a second. The word is a very special word, Hebrew and Greek, to indicate here is something that has been concealed. This is information that man has never known before. It's being revealed. It is a mystery up until this point, okay, or a secret up until this point. And I want you to notice that it's very important that in chapter 2, notice verse 18. In order that they might request, Daniel and his friends, might uh, request compassion from God, the God of heaven, concerning this mystery. Then notice verse 19, mystery. Then notice verse 27, mystery. Verse 28, however, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries look at verse 29 same thing mysteries 
about the future. Verse 30, but as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me because of any wisdom in me. And so it goes on. And you look at uh, verse uh, uh, 47, uh, reveal, be able to reveal the mystery. And, uh, and all through this chapter, there is this emphasis on the secret or the mystery that God has revealed. Now, I want us to go to the chapter itself, recognizing that God is about to reveal something that man's never heard about before, the mystery of God concerning the Gentile nations. Now, let's begin by looking at the text, chapter 2, verse 1. Now, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. See that plural? He had dreams and his spirit was troubled and his his, uh, sleep left him. Uh, You ever have times when you can't sleep at night? Last night was one for me, I'm telling you. I ended up in the living room and slept a little while. But I'm dragging this morning. Why? I couldn't sleep. That's what was happening to Daniel. He had a reason. Something was bothering him, so he couldn't sleep. And then notice in verse 3, or in verse 2, the latter part of the verse, he tells them, tell the king his dreams. So they came to uh, and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I had a dream. Now look up here. He's having evidently the same dream over and over again. It's dreams, but it's all one dream. It's the same one. Everybody with me? Now notice he says in verse 2, tell the king his dreams. That's what he wants the wise men to do. Now, notice in verse 5, he's talking to the Chaldeans, and they're objecting to the fact He's requiring them to tell them what the dream is. You said they say, "Tell us the dream, and we'll interpret it." Uh, Nebuchadnezzar in verse two says, "Tell me the dream." Then in verse five, the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, "That's wise man. The command from me is firm." Now look up here. I want you to notice that different translations translate this Hebrew phrase in different ways. The most popular one is the way I have it in the translation I'm using this morning. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, the command, what command? Tell me the dream. And then the interpretation is, is from me is firm. In the King James, the thing uh, has has gone from me is where it's translated. They take it, it's talking, he's talking about the dream that I forgot. Whereas the more popular view, and I believe the correct one, when you look at the grammar, the word in the Hebrew, or the words in the Hebrew, are translated uh, simply, uh, it's a, a word that is assured. And that goes along with the interpretation that it's the king. And his command, he says, the word is assured. I guarantee you, 
I'm going to penalize you and put you to death if you don't tell me what the dream is and then be able to tell me what it means. Now, I want to move from that. I'm not going to argue about that anymore. Just tell you that's the difference. It doesn't change the meaning of the text overall. But one other thing I think is important, verse 9, chapter 2, that if you do not make the dream, there's his command uh, to know, uh, uh, known to me, there is only one decree for you. For you have agreed together to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the situation is changed. Therefore, watch it, tell me the dream. Why? That I might know you can declare the interpretation. In other words, it seems to be that the text is saying he is wanting them to uh, reveal to him to reveal the dream so he can have some assurance that uh, when they give the interpretation, it will be a correct one. Got it? Now, let's look at the, at, uh, at the dream itself. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar has concealed it, the first 18 verses, and the Daniel and his friends pray, and God reveals the dream uh, to Daniel in particular. And we find in verse 24 to 30, that uh, he tells us that the origin of the dream is from God. It's not because you ate pizza last night, not because you had too many uh, chocolate uh, uh, candies or whatever, uh, but you have a dream that is from God. Now, notice verse, uh, verse uh, 31. Here's where we have the dream revealed. Verse 31, you, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue. That stature, which was large and extraordinary in splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. When I used to teach homiletics, students, young people back then, everything was awesome. I had one student, and he's pastoring a large church now, about 2,000 members. But he spoke in chapel uh, when he was in one, fulfilling one of his requirements for my homiletics class, my preaching class. I counted them. He said, awesome, 14, 15 times in about 20 minutes. But here he says, this particular dream of the stature, this stature, which was awesome, this is a message from God. Now, look what he says. It's a single great stature, a stature which was large and extraordinary in splendor and was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. Now, here comes the revelation. The head of the stature was made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze its legs of iron and its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. Now notice that the, uh, the metals are more valuable in the beginning. And I want to say to you, 
when you study history or you do a map or whatever, if I had an overhead, I'd show it to you. The Babylonian kingdom is a rather small kingdom, but it's the head of gold. Why? Because Nebuchadnezzar had absolute total control in that country. And that was possible because it was one of the smaller ones. Then after him, Medo-Persia comes, and then Greece. And as you look at the boundaries in history, they get bigger and bigger, but the king loses some of the power that Nebuchadnezzar had when the kingdom was smaller. Everybody with me? So he is the head of fine gold. Now, notice, the head of the statue was made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron and its feet, partly iron and partly clay. Then he says, you, King Neb, continued looking until the stone, a stone, was cut out without hands. Notice that. Man is not involved in the establishment of the fifth kingdom. And we're going to come back to that in, in just a few minutes, but I want you to notice. It's cut out without hands, and it struck the stature on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Now, uh, this thing begins to crumble. Notice, then the iron and the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like a chaff from the summer threshing floor, and the wind carried them away so that there was not a trace of them to be found. But the stone that struck the stature became a great mountain, a great uh, throne, leadership role it's talking about there, and filled the whole earth. It is a kingdom that is universal in nature. Now, I want you to notice what this statue is hit at the feet. It crumbles from the feet down. Remember the towers in New York City on September the 11th? Started at the top and crushed. This is the reverse. Starts at the feet, and then everything collapses as a result of that crushing. Now, I want you to notice the word crushed, crushed. It's repeated several times. We're going to come back to that. Remember we talked about it was a stone cut out with hands. All that goes together. There are implications theologically for it. We'll see that in just a few moments. Now, when we come to verse 37, here we have the interpretation. 31 to 35 is the dream. 36 and following verse 49 is the interpretation of the dream. Everybody with me? This is loaded with information. And every time I do Daniel, I go back and read it in detail again without my notes and then look at my notes. And I'm always finding something else that I missed the first time. And I say to myself, you dummy, how come you didn't see that? But that's the word of God, child of God. And there's so much there. And we have to very carefully read and see what it says. Now, verse 36, here's the interpretation. This was the dream. First few verses before. Now we will tell the interpretation. 
its interpretation before the king. Watch it. Verse 37. You, O king, Neb, are a king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom. Notice that. God gave you the kingdom. That's going to come back to haunt Nebuchadnezzar a little bit later in the book. But God gave him the kingdom, the power and the strength and glory. And then here's how powerful you were in your kingdom. And wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the air, he has given them, that is God, Yahweh the God of Israel, has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Okay? So Nebuchadnezzar, as the king of Babylon, is the head of gold in the stature. Now he moves down, and he begins to talk in verse 39 about additional kingdoms. Notice, and after you, there shall arise another kingdom, inferior to you. Now look up here. Don't get the wrong impression. He had absolute control. He was an absolute detail, uh, dictator over his kingdom. That kind of power begins to deteriorate uh, with the next kingdom because it becomes broader and less manageable. Therefore, he calls it inferior. Okay? Then notice, after you will rise another kingdom inferior to thee, and then another third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over the earth. Now, I want to stop there. And you may, may, may want to make a note, two of them in verse 39. talks about two additional kingdoms. We're going to jump ahead just a little bit, but I want you to see what he's telling us. When you look at verse 39, he talks about another kingdom after Babylon. If you want to make a note, if you go to chapter 10, and I'm going to do that, I'm going to hold a place in chapter 2, and I'm going to go to chapter 10, and you'll see that that next kingdom is identified for you. Notice, for example, verse 1. In the third year of Cyrus, the king of what? Persia. See? Uh, a message was revealed to Daniel. Not only should you write down verse 1, but you ought to write down verse 12 and verse 13. Then he said to me, Do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day, and angel's talking to him now, uh, that you set your heart to understand, for understanding this and humbled yourself before your God. Your word was heard. That's when you prayed. We heard you. And I have come to respond to your words. Verse 13. But... I was delayed. Why? The prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. That's why it took three weeks for him to get the answer. Now, I want you to look up here a second. He talks about the prince, not the king, but the prince. And he's not talking about human prince, a sub-king, nothing like that. He's talking, and we'll see it later in the book, he's talking about one of Satan's emissaries that is ruling over this kingdom. You hear what I just said? Each of the nations of this world, the God of this world, Satan himself, has representatives 
that are ruling behind the scenes over the leadership of each of the he, uh, human kingdoms. That's what he's talking about here. And the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me. Why? He doesn't want his kingdom to end. Okay? So what we have here, child of God, is Daniel tells us, Neb, you're the first kingdom. But later on when he's talking about another inferior kingdom, in chapter 10, he tells us what it is. It's Medo-Persia. Everybody with me? And listen, by the way, child of God, this is not just biblical talk. All you got to do is go back and study uh, history and you find these kingdoms. Okay? Now, if you go back to verse 39 in chapter 2 again, hold your place in 2 and in 10, because we're going to do it again. He says, then another kingdom of bronze, which will rule over the earth. Want to make a note? Chapter 10, verse 20. Now look at it. Chapter 10, verse 20. Then he said, Do you understand why I've come to you? But I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia. So I am going forth, and behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. So your third kingdom is another kingdom ruled over by an emissary from the God of this world, Satan himself, and it's Greece. Now look up here. What we have had revealed to us, when Daniel's just a young kid, after he's deported to Babylon, he says, Neb, you're the first kingdom. Then there's going to be Medo-Persia. Then there's going to be Greece. Everybody with me? Then he begins, begins to tell us about a fourth kingdom. Now look what it says in verse 40. Then there will be a fourth kingdom. As strong as iron, inasmuch as iron crushes and scatters all things, so like iron that breaks in pieces, it, the fourth kingdom, will crush the, and break all these in pieces. Now, all these, look up here. As we study the text, it becomes clear that each following kingdom absorbs the leadership and the people of the previous kingdom. So when you get to meet a Persia, don't forget, Babylon's just been sucked in. It still exists in uh, some form in the Medo-Persian kingdom. Then when Greece comes along, guess what? It sucks in the Babylonian kingdom and the Medo-Persian kingdom. So they're all part of this fourth kingdom. Notice, we go back to the text. Notice what it says, verse 40. And like iron uh, that breaks in pieces, it, the fourth kingdom and its leadership, will crush and break all these, the previous kingdoms, in pieces. It subdues them. Then notice verse 41. And in that you saw the feet and the toes, 
partly of potter's clay and partly of iron. It will be a divided kingdom, but it will have in it the toughness of iron inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. Now, we'll stop there for a second and make an observation. The observation down through the years as they have uh, theologians have uh, sought to understand the meaning of this fourth kingdom, it's the two legs and feet with ten toes. The suggestion has been made, and I'm inclined to agree with it wholeheartedly, that uh, there is two parts to this kingdom. Now, I'm not understanding all that that means, but the fourth kingdom is the one that's in existence when the stone comes and crushes the rest of them. Question, where is that fourth kingdom today? The suggestion is made that one leg is the beginning phase or stage of the fourth kingdom. The second leg is a second phase of the same kingdom. Now, you can't take that figure too far because you've got ten toes. Five of them on the one leg and five of them on the other. I can't explain all of that except to simply say the kingdom came in existence. It will be in existence when Christ comes back. So where is it today? There's a break in that kingdom. And we'll talk a little more about what kingdom that is in the days to come. But notice the feet, part of iron and part of clay. It's a weaker kingdom, though a much larger kingdom. Notice then that it says, and in that you saw the feet and toes, verse 41, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom. Okay? But it will uh, have in it the toughness of iron as much as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. And the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom will be strong uh, and part of it will be brittle. It will have strength, but it will have weaknesses. May I make an observation? America has been a strong, strong uh, kingdom or nation. But as time has gone on, the weaknesses have weakened us more and more. And we're in big trouble. I think most of us would understand that to be true today. But notice then in verse 43, And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another. It's a big kingdom, but it's not under the control of the sovereign like Nebuchadnezzar. They are united, but they are not united all at the same time. By the way, I think that's true in America today. Then notice what he says. Verse 44. And in the days of those kings, whoa, where did that come from? Kings. Those kings. What are you talking about? The reference goes back to the ten toes. And there are ten kings represented by the ten toes. Notice verse 44. 
And in the days of those kings, the ten kings in the fourth kingdom, the text says, those kings, uh, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. Now, I want to stop right there and give us a time frame. If you go back, all the way back to verse 29, you will note as you read the verse, it talks about the latter days. When you go to uh, uh, verse 28, the latter days. In verse 29, it talks about in the future. And then uh, it uh, comes down to verse 44, in the days of those kings. We're talking about something that is future, child of God. It is part of the last days. That's a reference in Scripture to end-time events eschatologically in the world. Now notice, verse 44, in the days of those kings, notice that, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. Look up here. What is he saying? When you looked at Nebuchadnezzar and his great kingdom, you then see uh, Persia, Medo Persia, and what happens? They gobble up the previous kingdom. Then when you get to Medo Persia and toward the end of its time and power, the kingdom of Greece gobbles them all up. What it's saying here is when God sets up a kingdom, that kingdom's not going to be gobbled up by another kingdom in the future. This is it. It's an eternal kingdom, and it's God's kingdom. Amen? Aren't you glad we've got that great hope from God, that he's in control? Now, look at it again, verse 44. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms. See it? But it itself will endure forever. Notice verse 45. For as much as you saw the stone that was cut out of the mountain in your dream, Nebuchadnezzar, without hand, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. The great God has made known to the king what will take place when? In the future. So the dream is true, and the interpretation is true. Now, I haven't got a whole lot of time this morning, uh, but I want to cover uh, one other major thing. Notice the God of heaven sets up the kingdom in verse 44. And it will crush. Now, we've seen this word a number of times. Let's talk about the crushing. Notice it's in verse 34. It's in verse 35. It's mentioned twice in verse 40. It's mentioned in verse 44. And it's mentioned again and verse 45. Anytime you had that kind of repetition, like the mystery, 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 all through the chapter, now you've got cross, 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 cross. Repetition makes whatever is being talked about 
of great significance because he keeps bringing it up. The question is, what is the crushing? God's kingdom crushes all the human kingdoms. Now, here's what I want to say to you. And uh, I don't know what your theological views are of eschatology here at, at, uh, in this Sunday school class this morning. Those who are listening on radio. I have some major friends, theologians, who are what we call all millennialists. I'm a premillennialist, and I am proud of it. Now listen to me. I study some of the greatest scholars. That's what a preacher is supposed to do. Verify what he's studying. See if other people have seen what he's seen so he doesn't jump off the track somewhere. But some of the greatest theologians and commentators I know in my library are all millennialist. Now, what does that mean? All millennialism means a millennium. That is, negative millennium. No millennial kingdom. It is the kingdom uh, that man sets up, not God. Christ will rule. Here's where it goes. Man will evangelize and evangelize and, and help people to begin to apply the word of God. And by the time Jesus is ready to come back, his kingdom is ready. All he's got to do is move in. Question. Do you see anywhere in history that that is what is happening? Absolutely not. And the text is telling us who sets up the fifth kingdom? God does. And he crushes in the times of the ten kings in the fourth kingdom. He crushes all the other kingdoms. Therefore, I cannot advocate an all-millennial position. It would be very popular for me to do that. A lot of people think, you're really smart. You've changed views. I think I'm being smart by looking at the text. Amen? The text says God crushes the kingdoms. Why? They're not getting better. They're getting worse. Amen? So God's got to come in and fix it. All right, now, with all of that said, with a couple of minutes I've got left, I'll say this. What is the crushing? May I make an observation? That when we get through the church age and we're raptured into heaven to be with the Lord, what comes next in the eschatological time frame? Say it out loud, class. The tribulation. I'm inclined to think the rushing or the crushing is the tribulation period when God just steps back, let man have his way, and eventually Satan moves in and takes over the world, and he's going to be the new God and so on. And all of a sudden, God comes. That's the end of you guys. See, listen to me, folks. This text over and over is advocating a premillennial kingdom. And I'm not trying to be disrespectful to people uh, who hold it. I've already admitted they're some of the greatest scholars that I know anything about. They just happen to be wrong on this major event. Amen? If you're going to take the word for what it says, then the crushing comes 
when God allows the tribulation and then the final blow is Christ comes and sets up his kingdom. So there is going to be a millennial kingdom, but God's going to set it up, not man. All right, let's pray. We'll be through. Father, thank you for the opportunity of looking at your word. We've covered a lot of material. I hope we haven't done it a disservice. Help people to understand, study over the material, and see what great truths are being revealed to us in this section. And may we revel in the fact that we're part of the family of God. And as the children of God, we're going to be with Christ and rule and reign with him during that millennial period here on this earth. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.